I want to give a shout out to Aventus, the world's leader in trade surveillance for digital assets. Trusted by Coinbase, Gemini, OSL, and many others, Aventus is also helping scores of other firms enter the crypto market. For digital asset trade surveillance, think Aventus. I'd like to also thank Kraken. With Kraken, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit kraken.com scoop to learn more. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy-to-use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone. No account registration is required. Download Exodus at exodus.com and you're ready to go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. We have a very exciting episode for you today. Joining us on the podcast is a guest coming in from London, England, Johan Borman of Consensus. He heads up a lot of what's going on at MetaMask as the product lead. This is actually the first time we've ever had anyone from Consensus join the show in over two and a half years of doing this thing. So we're super excited to get someone on from, from the company. Hopefully that doesn't make you too nervous as, as sort of being the stalwart for the firm, for the Scoop listeners. But I've heard so many great things about you. Really excited to unpack what's going on at MetaMask. But first, introduce you know to folks who may not be familiar with your background or sort of, I mean, they're definitely going to be familiar with what MetaMask is, but let's give them the elevator pitch anyway. Perfect. Yeah, thank you, Frank. No pressure then. I'll do my very best. I'll start by saying um, the product lead for MetaMask Institutional. I think that sort of differentiation is probably very important to note. Yeah, so um, as you noted, I'm based in London. You can probably tell from my funny accent, I grew up in South Africa. Background in finance, perhaps not surprising, given where most of the players in the institutional space come from. Sort of came to London about 15 years ago. Very lucky in sort of the fact that a guy who'd been running his own hedge fund was asked to start and build an investment business for a bank. And him and I sort of started with a piece of paper from scratch and built that business out to running a few billion at UM. I uh, was very entrepreneurial, loved doing it, intellectually very stimulating, but sort of realized around 2013, 2014 that A, it wasn't sort of making the impact that I want to make and B, software was eating the world. And so um, I uh, went to a place called Makers Academy to learn full stack development, find my way to a, um, a robo-advisor as director of product where I helped build the company's investment engine, helping scale across Europe. And uh, did about three years of that and then realized there was uh, more impact to make. So I bought my own fintech business, did that for three years, raised capital, put a team in place, and then stepped up last year to join Consensus to lead MetaMask Institutional. So that was announced only in April, this new business, right? Correct. So I think sort of our early hypothesis... But it was kind of born out of... A few different things, CodeFi and... Yeah, so I think our early hypothesis of you know where the problem might lie was sort of formed around Q3, Q4 last year. And then um, you know we built the beta on the 31st of Jan. We launched the version one on 31st of March. And I think probably more the, the public announcements were around those times. And then uh, recently we've launched an early adopter program, which also has got gathered some press as well. So I think those are sort of the three main key points in the dates and timelines. Mm-hmm. 
What was the thinking around creating an institutional version of MetaMask? And one thing that my colleagues and I have been so curious about is what exactly does it look like? Is it, you know, similar to regular MetaMask, just a Chrome extension that, you know, a hedge fund can use to ape into a coin or does it look different? Yeah. So, um, gosh, great question. So I think, um, let me start from first principles and so we can build from there. I think very much sort of our early hypothesis was that it was still very painful for institutions to allocate capital into the space. A flow we hear often is that whether it's crypto funds or DeFi focused funds or even hedge funds, you know, move assets from cold custodian storage to a hot on-chain wallet. If they want risk management around that process, they might be uh, using some of the products in the market to have a multi-sig for that hot on-chain wallet. That requires often the scanning of QR codes, connecting MetaMask wallets to sign transactions, multiple steps, you know, multiple transactions and gas fees along the way, a very painful process. And so essentially what we did is we, we built an SDK and an API that connects custodians into MetaMask. And why that's important, we would say, is that it solves three fundamental user needs. Uh, first and foremost, access to DeFi. And here we would say unrivaled access. I think this is a giant hat tip to the MetaMask team that have been pioneering innovating the space. And they are ubiquitous and the de facto wallets, we would say. And so it's very much about providing unrivaled access. Um, secondly, the second user need is very much around risk management. And this comes down to your point about what does an institutional wallet look like and what does it need? And by connecting to custodians, we can obviously have the safe storing of private keys in line with institutional requirements. And then secondly, uh, you know, that multi-sig approval process that institutions need. And then thirdly, just operational efficiency. So no longer this multi-step uh, transaction flow process where you're moving assets from cold custodian storage to a hot on-chain wallet that requires you know, gas fees. You have a very kind of streamlined investment process in line with sort of TradFly, where as a hedge fund, as a crypto fund, you, know, you can connect to protocols, you can initiate the transaction, and then you can come back to your custodian account to sign that transaction. We've also built in a bunch of institutional features within the wallet itself. Uh, we think very deeply about compliance. We're very focused on not just providing access to DeFi, but safe access to DeFi. And that includes a compliance layer. And we do something there that's it's very unique within the market that no one else is doing. And then we're also very focused on uh, what we kind of deem to be the capped allocation stack. You know, we spend a lot of time with our users understanding how they're doing research, how they're doing pre-trade compliance, how they're executing their trades monitoring their positions, reporting, and of course, custody. And so within that capital allocation stack and within the institutional wallet, we're very focused on you know, where we uniquely position to add value. And uh, to sort of step through the final point of your question, you know, what does the wallet look like? Fairly similar to MMI, uh, excuse me, to MetaMask today. Uh, the UX and the UI will be quite familiar to users, although there are some, I think, unique points in terms of the ability to connect your custodial accounts, first and foremost, this compliance layer that I talked about, and I think a big piece we're, we're now uh, you know, very busy on is kind of some of these other layers in the capital allocation stack, as I mentioned. That's kind of the interesting thing. That's what I was wondering, you know, is it effectively the same similar UI for users? And then you have all these added services that are kind of purpose built for a more institutional audience. So what has the demand looked like since the product kind of went out there to the world in April? Is there any sort of quantitative or qualitative ways you can define, illustrate the growth that you guys have seen? Yeah, great question. So I think um, 
you know, I always sort of think about adoption cycles within DeFi generally when I get questions like this. There's different ways to segment the market, obviously. A very simple mental model might be to say, well, you can think about the institutional space between crypto funds, family offices and hedge funds in the second category, and then obviously traditional financial players in the third. And you're very much a sort of seeing adoption cycles being directly correlated and caused by the regulatory oversight these institutions have. Within crypto funds, you can very much segment them again by you know small, mid-cap and large-cap. And again, you can sort of play what the AUM looks like of these three institutions. We have seen very strong part of market fit within the crypto fund space generally. Again, not surprising if one thinks of the adoption cycles within DeFi generally. And so very strong early adoption from smaller mid-cap crypto funds and then sort of the larger crypto funds, you know, institutions with more than a billion AUM have come on board, I think, over the last sort of three or four months. I think very interesting right now, and this is sort of a just a sort of a interesting observation over the last three or four months in the fact that adoption cycles uh, and you know crossing the chasm within DeFi seems to be happening. Our conversations have certainly changed. You know, if one just looks back three months ago, where the predominance of the institutions we were working with were mostly DeFi and crypto funds. And now it's definitely more regulated institutions. You know, we speak with very well-known hedge funds uh, globally. We speak with, um, you know, some long-only players uh, in the pension markets. And so it's been fascinating to see, you know, this, this kind of crossing the chasm of DeFi take place over a very, very short amount of time. And so to summarize and answer your question, you know, quite simply, uh, we've seen very strong product market fit specifically within the investment community. Uh, particularly within the institutional investor community looking to gain access to this asset class in this market. One thing that has been so attractive about DeFi and has kind of captured the attention of all corners of the market is the yield element. When I ask folks why they're interested in assets like Ethereum, yield is often at the top of the list. To what degree can MetaMask institutional help, maybe even retail banking platforms that have seen those yields compress. Anyone who's had a high interest savings account over the past year has has witnessed this firsthand. Have you had more sort of retail platforms come to you and, and ask, how can we tap into the yield opportunities without having to sort of touch this stuff ourselves? We just want an interface that we can leverage. <laughs> Yeah, I would say that um, we've not seen that particular use case, although we have seen more of, sort of the retail exchanges that do offer, let's assume, you know, a, a 5% APY to their retail customers, uh, look to uh, sort of build an internal trading desk that can then step into DeFi and essentially earn high yields and therefore earn a spread within their own balance sheets. And we've definitely seen, you know, those sorts of conversations effectively, you know, small funds or, or you think about them as crypto funds within these exchanges that are going out there and kind of managing their book. So those are sort of more, um, you know, typical use cases. I think the retail space is definitely trying to still figure out DeFi generally. And obviously, you know, this beautiful feature that is decentralization and pseudo-anonymous counterparties often can become a bug if you are a regulated institution. And I think uh, a lot of the conversations we're having now, whether it's crypto banks or the more regulated institutions or even the more regulated hedge funds, is really trying to think through this compliance angle within DeFi. 
Uh, we've obviously seen some regulation quite recently within the US as well as uh, the UK in trying to, um, you know, trying to stand this market better from a regulator's perspective. And, um, you know, I think a, a lot of players that we see that kind of have that strong regulatory oversight are trying to figure out the building blocks within the space. And I think this is very much sort of, you know, why we started with, you know, building compliance layer within MMI. Uh, it was sort of a, a key focus for us because we see as this market evolves, yes, we have early adopters today in the crypto fund space, but no doubt to your point, Frank, we're no doubt going to be seeing, you know, more of the, the regulated exchanges, the banks, et cetera, step into this market over the next, you know, 12 to 18 months or so. So you mentioned two groups that have weighted in to a degree, large regulated hedge funds, well-known hedge funds, well-known players in the pension market. What are these two groups doing with MetaMask Institutional? Are they just trying to get it set up so they can kind of see what this space is all about? Are they making allocations? How are they engaging with DeFi through MetaMask? Yeah, so I think the different mental models you have around your question. The first is the small and mid-cap crypto funds that are very active in terms of their yield farming. This entails churning quite a high percentage of their book on a daily as well as monthly basis as they move assets uh, across protocols. When you step towards sort of the, the market you're describing, which is, you know, obviously the larger crypto funds with more than a billion AUM, as well as potentially, you know, the regulated hedge funds, what you're seeing is, is often sort of a different usage and a more potentially conservative usage. And again, uh, that doesn't necessarily hold across all funds with more than a billion in AUM. Some of them are very active in terms of their, their yield fund strategies and their um, yield farming strategies. But on average, if you're talking about you know, these larger hedge funds and, and pension funds that you mentioned, and also some of the larger crypto funds, on average, you're seeing them sort of dip their toe into the space. And this might entail, you know, um, minting assets or lending assets on a comp on the Aave and using sort of more of the, the most well-known protocols into the space. As you can imagine, you know, the books that these institutions trade are very large. The assets they move, even with one trade, is also very large. And so that often limits them in terms of the projects and protocols that they can partake in. And so at this stage, what we're seeing is very much sort of, um, you know, a treasury management function. If I can call it that, you know, assets on their, their balance sheets being moved into a compound or RVA or other lending protocols that can give them that high yield for the cash that they hold within their treasury. So those are the typical use cases. And again, it very much depends on which segments of the market you're focusing on. And that sort of drives, you know, how active these institutions are. Yeah. So it's not like they're necessarily aping into sushi or swapping between coins like we kind of saw during the DeFi summer and, and even persisting to today, it's more about locking up some USDC into a lending protocol to get that yield. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Um, and any sense of how much they're putting to work? Probably small percentage relative to the size of the entire fund, but maybe relative to what we see with smaller operations, maybe quite a bit. Yeah, I think that's a, a tough question to um, to answer because this is such a dynamic and fast moving market and space. And um, you know, I think if you're talking about real institutional capital, I think it's very early in trying to figure out 
all these layers in the stack that I mentioned, you know, we're very much at an early stage within DeFi where that infrastructure layer is now being built. You know, we're obviously seeing a lot of a ton of investments within custodians at the stage. We're seeing a ton of investment into going into uh, the compliance layer, the execution layer, order management systems, data analytics. You know, all these layers in the stack are now being built in order for DeFi to cross the chasm in, towards CFI. And, um, you know, no doubt we'll, we'll probably see more and more institutional capital step into the space as this infrastructure layer gets built. As for now, though, um, yes, you're right. It's very much sort of a, a small allocation of their book. You know, I'm not sure I can quote sort of accurate figures in terms of those percentages. Uh, I think they range from, you know, a 5 to 10%, um, maybe even less than that. In terms of these larger, more regulated institutions, allocating capital into DeFi. And again, like I said, these are very conservative use cases, you know, earning additional yield on your treasury balances. It's not, as you pointed out, (laughs) aping into, you know, different protocols at this stage. Who knows, we might get there, but obviously um, the assets that these institutions move, the size of their book can't accommodate for the majority of trading within DeFi. And so it's very much focused on a handful of protocols that can take their volume. I want to give another shout out to Aventus. Aventus is the world's leading platform for digital asset trade surveillance, market risk, and transaction monitoring with some of the largest crypto exchanges and institutions in the world using Aventus to drive efficiencies in their regulatory operations and mitigate the risks of fines and reputational damage. Visit AventusSystems.com today to find out why 80% of the firms who take a custom demo become clients. Shine a light on your trading today with Aventus. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Now with the new Kraken app, it's easier than ever to buy and sell over 60 of the most popular cryptocurrencies on the go 24-7. Simply download the Kraken app, connect your bank account, and start investing for as little as $10. Just a minute is all it takes to get started. I also want to give a special thanks to Exodus. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy to use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone and interactive charts let you view the price history of a specific asset and your portfolio's performance over time. Sync your wallet across multiple devices to access your funds from anywhere. Maybe the best part is Exodus is integrated with the Trezor hardware wallet, making advanced security easy for everyone. Download Exodus at exodus.com today. What has gotten institutions comfortable with this market and does some of the meanness of it throw them off <laughs> when they see things like, you know, $600 million hacks, exploits, a wide range of food coins? <laughs> How do you get over that as a regulated institution? How do you mollify them, Johan? Mm. I'm sure that, that, you know, money talks, but so do some of these other things it's a very astute observation you know money does talk and um you know no doubt the investment returns within the space has driven loads of attention to come back to your sort of the the nub of your question you know sort of the core 
focus point behind it. The way I like to think about it is that there are no doubt these these layers in the stack that I mentioned before, and those layers are now being built. And you can sort of start from first principles by you're looking at the bottom of this capital allocation stack, which is custody. And uh, as I pointed out, you know, um, you know, you're seeing a ton of investment rushing into the space. Anecdotally, uh, uh, here in the UK, I heard from a custodian that the uh, FCA has shut down its applications for crypto custodians because there's a nine-month backlog. And so more and more players are flooding into this infrastructure layer within the market, whether it be custodians, uh, whether it be data analytics, very importantly, compliance. And so to answer your question, it's all those risk management layers that most institutions need. All right. So how can I safely store these assets? How can I make sure that from a KYC and KYT perspective, I'm not trading with nefarious counterparties? And I think a very interesting trend we're seeing now within DeFi is we're seeing more and more protocols that are essentially launching KYC versions of themselves. I think of the um, Arbe Pro comes to mind. You know, we also have you know, Alchemy that exists today in offering kind of that, that KYC version of what they do to institutions. And so I think there's very much sort of a, a macro thesis as well as a micro thesis happening in order for this crossing and this chasm and to make institutions more comfortable with the asset class. From a macro thesis and a sort of a changing of the winds and directions, we're obviously seeing, as I pointed out, all this infrastructure lay being built. So again, you know, more custodians, qualified custodians, KYT solutions, risk management around order management systems, compliance. And then very importantly, from a, from a micro perspective, from a bottom-up perspective, you know, you're seeing a very interesting thing happening within DeFi, as I pointed out, where the, the protocols themselves are very much thinking about institutional capital. And no doubt between these two kind of macro and micro trends, you know, um, you'll see sort of a, a bridging happen where I think more institutions will get comfortable with the space. And I think more, more importantly, the biggest and most regulated institutions will probably get more interested because they'll be able to actually access the asset class. And so I think it all really starts with a custodian layer and then it sort of builds from there, you know, um, these various different layers in the stack to ensure that the most regulated institutions, you know, feel safe stepping into into this market. I don't think I've got a good answer for you in terms of, you know, how do we get over the memes? And I don't think we should. I think it's obviously uh, very much a feature of, of DeFi generally of, you know, this, this new world that's being built and, you know, rethinking the entire financial infrastructure from first principles and doing so not in a span of decades or years, but doing it in a span of months and, and weeks. And, um, you know, that's obviously not ages, not just very important, but also it has, can have a profound effect on the financial uh, system generally. And so, you know, I think uh, power to the memes, I would say, and, uh, you know, all the food tokens that, that go with it. Explain to me, like I'm not like I'm five, that's probably too young. Explain to me like I'm 12, how KYC works with a product like this. How can you operate as a hedge fund and interact with these DeFi protocols and know who's on the other side? If yeah. you're supposed to be engaging with these things that are trustless, nameless, etc., how can you know you're not, you don't have Hamas or some money launderer on the other side? Great question. 
So I think it's very important to distinguish between KYC and KYT. The first category being obviously know your customer and the second being know your transaction. Within KYC, this is something that would be familiar to most of us. A good example of that would be whenever we create a new bank account or when we go through a fiat on-ramp, you know, obviously we have to provide um, some identification, our residential address. And a KYC is, is, I think, one half of the whole anti-money laundering processes. And if when you're looking at something like Aave Pro or Alchemy, you know, these are examples of DeFi protocols that now require their users to go through KYC. And Frank, to sort of the, the focus of your question is very much, well, how can I know who I'm trading with? Well, obviously, KYC solves that to some degree. And this is exactly what centralized exchanges do. Uh, they obviously ensure that all the counterparties within a particular centralized exchange has gone through some sort of a, a AML and KYC process so that you know that you're not trading with nefarious counterparties. The second half of anti-money laundering checking is the KYT piece. Know your transaction. And one can potentially argue that it's far more important because this looks at the flow of funds. And um, if you look uh, or we speak with experts within the space, they often say that it's almost quite easy to, to fake or pass KYC. And a far more difficult thing is actually the flow of funds. Now, this is where there are a bunch of phenomenal tools in the market that exist today. As some are very familiar, no doubt, to your listeners that can look within a particular blockchain can follow the flow of funds, can tag network activity based on how these different wallet addresses are interacting, and then can flag the risk of these wallet addresses based on you know, their behavior, based on what they're doing. And so we're talking about risk management within DeFi generally. I think, again, there are kind of two broad categories. One is KYC, and this is very much currently being handled at a protocol level. Although, you know, there might be no doubt a future where some of this problem gets solved uh, through decentralized IDs and VCs. But I think um, in terms of the way we think about it, it is very much the KYT perspective. And this is where we've built a layer within MetaMask Institutional that can uh, look at DeFi activity as a user, whether you're a crypto fund or, you know, a hedge fund, as you're looking at a particular DeFi pool. How can we run analysis for you on that particular DeFi pool? And how can we surface the risk to you based on your own compliance settings? And what that entails essentially is, again, mapping kind of net the network activity, understanding addresses that have been tagged as being nefarious. And that can range from factors like, you know, frauds, phishing attacks, you know, cyber crimes, tagging various addresses within the Ethereum ecosystem based on these various different categories and then surfacing the risk to you as you're about to step into a pool. That's what I've described is what is considered to be pre-trade compliance. So it is compliance that happens before you transact. But another factor, which is also very important, is actually post-trade compliance. So once you're in a pool itself, you know, once you're um, earning yield in a, in a lending pool, um, how can you have ongoing monitoring in that pool? How can you ensure that you're constantly tracking the flow of funds between the various different addresses within that particular pool and therefore service to the user, service to the crypto fund or the hedge fund that there might be a nefarious counterparty that has stepped into that pool? And I think to summarize all of that, and when we're talking about risk management AML from an AML perspective, we're not saying like we've identified Frank, you know, he's a nefarious counterparty because he did something nefarious. 
It's more the wallet address that has been tagged, you know, for nefarious activity based on a whole range of categories that can be followed and tracked within the wallet's mm. behavior within the network. So, okay. So basically you have, let's say there's pool A, right? And I'm a hedge fund. I want to park some money into pool A and you have this system that kind of analyzes the pools and it will flag pool A as having some wallet that is connected to something nefarious. And so in that case, it'll either be blocked or the client would then not proceed to allocate to that pool. That is absolutely correct. And so a nuance around that point is that um, the clients would be able to set their own compliance settings first and foremost to say, well, we deem these activities to be unacceptable, low risk, high risk, and medium risk. And so that analysis that you're talking about that says to them, hey, you're about to step into this pool, what risk are you taking? That risk is based on their own compliance settings. And uh, we very much see the tool being used in two ways. Uh, one is on a relative basis, another is on an absolute basis. Relative meaning that the institution might say, as long as the risk within that pool based on unacceptable addresses is below our internal threshold, we are happy to allocate capital into this pool. We also see, and this is definitely from the, the more regulated institutions, that very much take an absolute stance in terms of their risk management. So what this entails is, you know, as they, they in your example, look at pool A and they see a fair, uh, one address is being flagged as unacceptable, they won't transact in that pool. So they'll divert their capital into another pool. And this could obviously range from a decentralized exchange. You know, they might go and trade on another pool, um, you know, move assets from on a sushi swap or other new swap as, a, as an example. Or it could be obviously like on the lending pool where they might decide, well, you know, we're not going to use this particular lending pool because the, the risk management of this pool doesn't align with you know, our own internal risk management. So before we got you, we finally got you on the show, I was talking with James at Consensus. He kind of runs up comms and marketing for you guys. I've known him since the more heady days of Consensus. And one thing that we were talking about that I thought was interesting is just how if you rewind the clock to 2018, 2017, when we thought about what institutions would be interested in, it certainly wasn't DEXs, right? I mean, back then the volumes were paltry to say the least. And, you know, everyone was kind of excited about things like, I don't know, uh, real estate on the blockchain or settling municipal bonds on the blockchain. And, and that's what was going to unlock a waterfall of capital. But now here we are. I don't think there's been any major real estate STO that I've heard of. Certainly, it's not making headlines to the extent of what we're seeing out of the DeFi world. With all that said, I mean, does that does that surprise you that like ultimately what consensus is working on or building on the institutional side is so much more crypto native than maybe what we would have expected? That's a really interesting question. I think that the way I think about this, and I think sort of gen DeFi generally, and um, it's a quote I'm gonna I'm gonna slightly steal, but um, innovation is the child of freedom and the parent of prosperity. And I think that, you know, DeFi is an ecosystem where it is radical freedom and that provides radical innovation. And, you know, again, going back to 2018, I don't think many people would have, would have had the vision to foresee where this ecosystem would be today. 
But given that it, that it has that freedom, given that it has experimentation, and given that you know we have permissionless and um, a community that can build unconstrained, it has obviously produced incredible businesses, incredible products, and we'll no doubt only at the first innings of you know where this ecosystem can go and will go. And so um, I think it's very hard to predict the future. I think it's very hard to predict the future in, in technology. And so, um, you know, I think looking back from 2018 and even looking forward three years from now, you know, I, I think it's very hard to, to sort of call these trends correctly. And therefore, to, to answer you, perhaps not that surprised in terms of that, you know, uh, the trend was far, far more profound and impactful than what we thought. But, um, you know, perhaps a very different from what we thought as well. And I think that it's because of just how, with things like DeFi, you're really starting at first principles, right? You're not trying to repackage something. You're, you're really completely reinventing from the ground level the way these financial services work. And I think it's captured the awe of the market far more than, you know, uh, and, and you know this coming from the robo world. Yearn has been growing at a clip that makes the betterments and wealth fronts of the world look like child's play. Some of these lending platforms have grown faster and have more institutional interest, arguably, than the once cherished lending club and lending tree. Whatever happened, those guys, nobody even talks about them anymore. So I don't know if this is really a question. I'm just sort of thinking through some things, but it's certainly been interesting. In any case, I want to be respectful of your time. This has been really interesting. I think probably the most deep dive into what, what you guys are doing. So I'm sure it'll be eye-opening for our listeners. What about future plans? So what maybe will come next? What should we jot down and expect from MetaMask Institutional? Are there any plans to integrate with qualified custodians? How do you plan to build this out further? I can definitely say that we have some very big announcements coming out fairly shortly in the months ahead. It might sound like a broken record, but I think it's one of our favorite models, uh, mentor models within MMI that we think very deeply about this capital allocation stack, you know, ranging from research to pre-trade compliance, execution, yield, monitoring, reporting, custody. And so I think a big piece we're focusing on now and you know a lot of the pain points we hear from our users, and we spend a bunch of time with our users. I think, you know, as a team, uh, most of our days are started with speaking with funds in Asia. Most of our days ends with speaking with funds in the US. You know, we think very deeply about like how do we solve their pain points across that capitalization stack. And I think you know um, that entails thinking very deeply about what is the institutional DeFi experience. What does it look like? Uh, what does the interface look like? What are the capabilities? And as I, as I talk through those different layers in the stack, you know, whether it's execution, whether it's monitoring, whether it's reporting, whether it's custody, you know, we, we are thinking very deeply about building first principle product for our users and also partnering with the right institutions within those layers. And so I know that is super vague and super macro, but, um, yeah, I think, um, you know, we'll, uh, we're, we're going to have a, a bunch of really exciting announcements, you know, in the, in the next couple of months. Very much focused, like I say, on user needs across that capital allocation stack. So I will say stay tuned and um, look forward to, uh, to speaking with you about all these exciting things in the near future. Where can our listeners learn more about you and 
what you guys are working on. Maybe there's a you know multi-billion dollar hedge fund that is yet to dip their toes into <laughs> DeFi. Where can that hypothetical listener find you? Well, I should say that that hypothetical listener should immediately email me uh, <laughs> after this, uh, listening to this podcast. <laughs> so um, if uh, that hypothetical listener just Googles MetaMask Institutional, there is a landing page that covers all things related to, to MMI. Uh, there's a simple way to get in touch with us through that, that landing page. And um, yeah, please do reach out. Like I say, I do spend a lot of my time speaking with hedge funds and long-only managers. Um, I'm not very active on socials. Uh, I find it a bit of a distraction personally in terms of, uh, yes, I do follow, but I, I don't uh, often tweet. And so um, if LinkedIn is, is still being used these days, please look me up on LinkedIn. You know, like I say, we've got some uh, very exciting things in the back uh, that we're busy working on. So we'd, we'd love to be speaking with you. Well, Johan, we'll definitely check back in with you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. We've had Johan Borman, product lead for MetaMask Institutional at Consensus. The Scoop will be back for you again with another exciting guest later this week. Johan, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Frank.